Welcome to episode 27 of the Farm Exec Podcast. This is Michelle Scally, Senior Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. And this is Kristen Harm, Associate Editor of Farm Exec Magazine. Farm Exec Magazine is a multimedia publishing brand that brings you the latest commercial insights for the CC. Kristen, what are we talking about on today's episode? We're welcoming to the podcast Seth Letterman. He's the co-founder, CEO, and chairman of Tonic Pharmaceuticals. I had the opportunity to meet Seth at J.P. Morgan, and he's a really interesting guy who's a great storyteller and has some very interesting insights on the industry, academia, and some of our most fragile populations in the U.S. Let's take a quick break, and then we'll play Seth's interview. Have you ever wanted to go back and peruse old issues of PharmExec? We may not be able to give you access to the bound book issues we have in our archive room, but we do offer digital versions of each magazine. To view them, visit farmexec.com, hover over the magazine option at the top of the page, and then choose Digital Archive for a page filled with back issues. Hello, fellow podcasters. We're here today with Seth Letterman, co-founder, CEO, and chairman of Tonics Pharma. Hey, Seth, how are you today? Great. Thank you for speaking with me, Kristen. Thanks for coming on. So we've actually had this podcast in the works for a while. Seth, I think we first spoke on the phone sometime in the fall of 2018, and then we had the opportunity to meet in person at J.P. Morgan in January. Steph, can you tell us um, a little briefly about yourself and Tonics? Thanks. I'm the CEO of Tonics, and we are a drug development company focused on developing a new treatment for post-traumatic stress disorder, or PTSD. We're in phase three development for PTSD, and our product has been awarded FDA Breakthrough Therapy designation. So I'm proud to be the leader of this company, which is working on an unmet need of really enormous proportion. We've done two large clinical studies on people with military-related PTSD who experienced traumatic events in Iraq and Afghanistan during their military service. And I'm happy to tell you more about the program as we get through this exciting podcast. Personally, I'm a physician, and I was on the faculty of Columbia Medical School for a number of years, but I've been in industry for about 20 years now. At J.C. Morgan, we talked uh, a lot about how your current work at Sonics has the potential, and you've just mentioned this, to help some of our most fragile populations such as military veterans who are suffering from PTSD. You were very passionate about this issue when we were talking about it. So tell us a little bit more about how some of what you're working on now could help them. Thank you. PTSD is an enormous problem, not only for the people who are affected by it, but also for their families. So it has occurred in about 20 to 30% of people who served in the United States Army in the recent in the recent wars 
So there are about 3 million people who have been deployed, and 20% of that would be about 600,000 people. But it, it really affects each one of those people affects four or five other people, you know, who are close to them in terms of being family members or friends or colleagues. And PTSD is really devastating symptoms. Many people are familiar with the symptoms from movies like Hurt Locker or American Sniper. And those films do a pretty good job of capturing how troubling PTSD can be for people affected. We're proud to be the leading company developing a new therapeutic for PTSD. And in our studies, approximately 20% of people on our drug experienced remission within only 12 weeks of therapy. Now, our drug has side effects like insomnia, somnolence, dry mouth, and, and some other uh, symptoms. So every prescription drug uh, has risks and rewards, but we think that, that our drug is a very good value proposition um, for people who have been on it so far in the clinical trial program. Serious neuropsychiatric conditions can be a pretty sensitive topic to talk about. So what challenges does that create especially when you're going through the clinical stage, and how do you navigate them? That's an excellent question. Serious psychiatric problems are often associated with either some level of shame or embarrassment or, in some cases, concerns about retaliation or job discrimination. So someone in the armed forces who's diagnosed with PTSD typically loses their weapon, they, and frequently, ultimately, they're separated from service and lose their job. Veterans with PTSD, for the most part, are blocked from getting jobs like serving as a police officer, a firefighter, or a TSA officer. So there's a huge disincentive to be identified with the diagnosis of PTSD. Unfortunately, that disincentive is really counterproductive because the medical recommendation really is that PTSD should be diagnosed and treated early and that uh, early treatment is strongly advised. So we're trying to provide um, a new product to the marketplace that would be an incentive for people to be diagnosed and treated. You're not new to working in therapeutic areas that are sensitive topics. You also worked in the early days, uh, early days of the AIDS epidemic. How is that different from PTSD and mental health these days? That's an excellent question and an interesting comparison. I did start my career at the outset of the HIV epidemic, or at least the time when HIV was appreciated. And working at that time, was very exciting um, as a scientist because society made a major effort to tackle the problem. You had a vast increase in government spending at the National Institutes of Health and other agencies related to developing new drugs, and also in the pharmaceutical industry. The major pharmaceutical industry in the United States was the envy of the world 
and many of the companies had world-leading basic and, and um, development research capabilities. So in the AIDS era, one did not feel alone trying to tackle this problem. And it was important because as difficult as the challenge was, there was a feeling that with all of the support and the way that it brought America together to fight this challenge, um, it was easy to feel like you were part of an important team, part of an important movement. In the PTSD field, um, it's quite a bit lonelier. I don't understand it, but there is no outrage. There's no mobilization of affected people, of affected families. There's no mobilization of government resources to combat the problem at, at a scale that even comes close to what was done for HIV. And it's very disappointing. The world has changed in a number of ways that um, big pharmaceutical companies, for the most part, have become sales and marketing organizations. So we really don't have the same infrastructure in big, what's called big pharma today that we had back in, in the um, mid-'80s. So we really can't count on big pharma to help us with these problems. And in terms of the government response, I think it's really been inadequate. Uh, obviously, the um, government has many uh, challenges that they have to deal with, but the military is such an essential part of our country, such an essential part of maintaining freedom, and we count on a volunteer army to defend us. So I think the government has an obligation to take care of people who are affected by particularly military PTSD. And I think that the amount of research going on today is completely inadequate, uh, particularly given how much is known about brain science and what could be done to tackle this problem. As a matter of fact, I'll just point out that Tonics has been working very actively in the area since 2013, and Tonics has invested about $150 million in our PTSD program, and we've not received any federal support for our program. I think that if you compare that to the kind of effort that was done in the HIV era, um, you know, that would be unthinkable. Seth, you're also not new to running a business. You started several, including Targent Pharmaceuticals, which was sold to Spectrum Pharmaceuticals. So what's your secret to building a successful company? Well, first of all, as you can tell from my early experience at Columbia, I'm really someone who seeks solutions for difficult problems. So um, HIV was a difficult problem, and um, we attacked that. People weren't working in it. Um, or not, not enough at the, at the time I started. And then um, in the cancer area, uh, we were early on in cancer research at a time where not so many companies were involved. Cancer has now become much more popular for drug companies to work on. But at, Tana, at Targent, what we did was we attacked common cancers and uh, the one that we went after was colorectal cancer, 
which is one of the most common cancers in the United States. And the medicines available to the people in the United States were not as good as what were available in other countries, which was really surprising. And we um, uh, therefore um, uh, developed and championed a drug called levofolinic acid as a part of the chemotherapy of colorectal cancer. Um, we sold that product and the assets of Targent to a company called Spectrum, who won FDA approval for the product that they then marketed as Fusilev. And uh, actually, recently, they've gotten a new um, indication for a new formulation of, of um, levofolinic acid. And I'm pleased to say that although there were some um, hurdles to the adoption of the uh, improved product when it was marketed as Fusilev, it, it did acquire um, a substantial market share, I think as much as 30% of the market. Um, and um, now that it's generic and the price has come down and there are no longer obstacles to patients getting the best drug, it's my understanding that as a generic product, our levofolinic acid is uh, dominating the market and will essentially replace the medicines that came before it. You mentioned earlier uh, about being in academia, and until 2017, you were also a professor at Columbia University for, I believe, over 20 years. Um, how have you seen the relationship between academia and industry change during that time? That's an excellent question. When I, early on, when I was a young faculty member, uh, industry was viewed with great suspicion by academia, and there was a culture of keeping industry at arm's length. And there was also a culture that if someone went into industry, <clears throat> um, it would be hard for them to return to academia, that it was a one a one-way street. Um, that's completely changed now. Uh, for example, a Genentech executive became the president of Rockefeller University, and he's now the president of Stanford University. So that's an example to make the case of a greater um, uh, trend that many people go to industry and then come back to academia. And more importantly, the uh, barriers between academia and industry are much more reasonable now than they were then. So a lot of technology is rapidly transferred from universities to industry, and industry has a unique role in the, in the chain of creating new products because industry is uniquely set up to do late-stage development and, and get FDA approval. Uh, academia just isn't set up for that. So I think that the relationship is very good right now between industry and academia. I think it's common for people in academia to recognize industry as an important part of the, of the um, process of getting drugs approved and that it's also a very interesting and stimulating career path. As interesting or I find academia more interesting than uh, doing the basic science that I did in, in academia. And the research that I did in academia was world-leading. 
for example, I found the link called the, the molecular basis of T cell helper function, the link between the humoral and the cellular immunity, and I was awarded tenure at Columbia University. So I, I had a stimulating career in academia, but I think that industry has even more challenges and greater possibility for creativity. Before we wrap up, what do you think the mental health treatment landscape will look like in 10 or 15 years? Thank you. Hopefully, the mental health uh, treatment landscape will be much better than it is today. When I look at society and the biggest problems in society, I think of crime, homelessness, suicide, uh, and, and a variety of other things. So I think that, you know, the big ch school shootings, terrorism, I think the big challenges that our society is facing are mental health challenges. The other thing that's so important about tackling mental health challenges is that particularly when mental health challenges, if they can be addressed early on in someone's life, uh, problems that start in the 20s or 30s, if they can be ad addressed, then you can change the trajectory of someone's life, make them more productive and happier, and have a much bigger impact. So um, there are a number of reasons why this should, this should be changed, for example. And that is now there's, you know, parity in mental health is a, is a well-adopted concept from the, you know, Affordable Care Act and from the 21st Century Cures Act. So there's a lot of impetus, economic impetus, that should allow new therapies for mental health to be available. Unfortunately, short-term, I do not see nearly enough research and development activity of psychiatric medicines. So I think that we have been through a period where there's been a huge incentive for pharmaceutical companies to work on orphan diseases and cancer, and I think that orphan diseases and cancer are very important problems, and I'm glad to see the progress that's being made. But somehow the incentives to develop new therapies for psychiatric disorders have to be um, adjusted to attract more innovation in the area. And the government has the means at its disposal to put these incentives in place. For example, orphan drugs are stimulated by the seven years of market exclusivity that the government provides developers of orphan drugs. I think that one thing the government should consider is to give seven years of exclusivity for new psychiatric drugs. Antibiotics were recognized as an area that needed special treatment uh, to, to encourage more people to address the antibiotic resistance issue. So the government gave 10 years of market exclusivity for new antibiotics. So I think that new psychiatry drugs should be considered for 10 years of exclusivity. Biologic drugs, which are proteins or antibodies that are injected into the bloodstream, were awarded 12 years of market exclusivity in the Affordable Care Act. So I don't think it would be unreasonable to consider that new drugs for psychiatry should get 12 years of market exclusivity. So those are all ways that the government can stimulate the development and approval of new psychiatric drugs that are budget neutral. Awarding market exclusivity doesn't cost the government anything, and it's a huge stimulus to companies and people to work in the area. And I think that that would hopefully address some of the incredible needs we have in the United States. 
particularly the suicide problem, and particularly the suicide problem in young adults. You may know that suicides in veterans is, uh, is occurring at about 22 suicides a day, and that's been going on for quite a while. So that every year since 2011, there have been more veteran suicides each year than the total number of combat fatalities in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. I think that's just an unacceptable situation, and the government, I believe, should do more to stimulate research and development of new drugs in psychiatry to start addressing that problem. Seth, we're really thankful that you were able to speak with us and our listeners today. Thank you so much. Thank you. I'm really glad for the opportunity to talk with you, and, and I really appreciated your questions. And now it's time for this week's leadership tip from pharma execs. I'm Seth Letterman from Tonics Pharmaceuticals. My thoughts on leadership in business are all about people. The best companies have the best people. The best leaders figure out how to recruit, train, and retain the best people. One of my favorite corporate credos is from ER Squibb, which is now part of Bristol-Myers Squibb, but this credo is still on the website of Bristol-Myers Squibb as one of their credos. And the quote is, the priceless ingredient of every product is the honor and integrity of its maker. The reason I like that credo so much is it really brings the product back to the people who make it. And that's why my leadership is focused on people. Thank you guys for listening. We hope you enjoyed this week's Farm Exec podcast. We are always pleased to take you behind the headlines, provide expert tips from industry leaders, and give you an inside look at what the Farm Exec staff is working on. Remember that you can always find us on the web at farmexec.com, on Twitter at farmexec, or on Instagram at farmexecutive, and on YouTube. The views expressed on this podcast do not reflect the views of FarmExec, its parent company, or our advertisers. For editorial questions, please email editorial director lisa.henderson at ubm.com. And for sponsorship opportunities, please email group publisher Todd Baker at todd.baker at ubm.com.